welcome to episode 213 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with Lydia Creech, Darren Hughes, Reed Ramsey. In today's episode, we will be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one, and in part two, we will continue our Directed by Kelly Reichardt series with 2013's Night Moves. Uh, but let's go ahead and jump into movies that we saw this week, and this is kind of cheating. We're, we're still a little bit, you know, some aftermath of, of TIFF still happening. Uh, Darren, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you wanted to talk specifically about this movie, which was, I don't know about you, but my favorite from Toronto, and that is the new Barry Jenkins movie, If Beale Street Could Talk. Uh, it's based on the novel by James Baldwin. It's his follow-up to Moonlight. Um, yeah, what do you, I, I think you were in the same 9 o'clock a.m. screening as I was. I, I was. I feel, like the, I feel like the early morning uh, effect, just kind of that you were still waking up and it was dreamy, at least that had an effect on me. But what, what, what did you make of Beale Street? Yeah, um, first of all, 9 o'clock in the morning is basically my ideal time to watch a movie. So, like, especially when I'm at a festival, I if there are morning screenings of, of films um, that I'm excited about, I actually, like, tried to see those. Um, but yeah, if Beale street could talk, you know, like I, I try as best as I can to go in blind to, um, the films I see at TIFF. And so I had intentionally not watched the trailer. I'd seen the one still of, um, the two main characters, you know, sitting on a subway together, but, but that's all I basically all I knew about it. I hadn't read the, the, the Baldwin novel. And, um, I was really curious to see, um, I don't, it, it's hard with someone when somebody, uh, a relatively young new filmmaker makes a film as lauded and as distinct as Moonlight. I, 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 I almost worry that um, the style will be so rigid that um, the, 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 the next film will feel too much like the first one. Um, and uh and so I, I, don't, I won't say that my expectations were lowered, but I don't know that I went in with any expectations. And um, there's a scene, I won't give anything away, but there's a scene maybe 10 or 15 minutes into the movie where a bunch of people get together. And there came this moment where I realized that this scene wasn't going to end quickly, that we were going to actually stay with these characters for Maybe I, I don't know how long that family scene is, maybe 10 minutes. Um, and I, and I kind of settled into my seat and cause I realized, okay, this is what this movie is. It's going to spend some time with the characters. It's going to kind of like, uh, have some fun. I, I don't, I, again, I still haven't read the novel, so I don't know how much of it is Baldwin and how much of it is Barry's, um, invention. But um, there are four or five long conversation scenes in these films in this film that just like wrecked me. Like it's 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 formally I think it's it's a I would describe the film as a melodrama. Um, but the structure of it is just so interesting. The way we get these long conversations, they're conversations that I feel like I haven't seen in movies before. In some time, I know that you highlighted one, uh, and it's difficult to to really like discuss it too deeply because we're you know you don't want to give away too much. But I know you described one a little bit on Twitter after watching it. The the discussion that the two father figures have of the of the families of the the couple at the center of the story, and that happens pretty late in the movie, and it does just it's 
it's a very powerful little scene. And they're just at a bar, just kind of, you would think it's it's just one of those scenes where they're just kind of trading, you know, conversation. But it's something just really deep, very uh, unlike a conversation that you would see in, in a movie between two men about kind of their familial duties. It, it was a very powerful sequence. Yeah, you know, and, and by the time you get in that to that scene, it's not just that the story itself is very melodramatic and, and emotionally, um, uh, what's the right word? Exhausting. I mean, it's like, but, but it's like the form of the film is, um, so, uh, expressionistic. I mean, the, the, um, the colors, the, the color scheme in the film. And, um, I noticed at the end that, uh, Jonathan Demi gets a, gets a shout out in the, in the, um, thank yous. And it hadn't occurred to me as I was watching it, but it's one of the, if Bill Street could talk is one of the few films I can think of, maybe the only film I could think of that uses that silence of the lambs technique where maybe 25% of the film is a character is a face in close up addressing the camera directly. And I don't think I realized until afterwards the effect that that had had on me, where it was just like, by the time we get to that scene in the bar with the two fathers, talking um the the uh one of the fathers makes this comment and that i wasn't expecting and like i kind of like my body convulsed a little bit it was like i just kind of sobbed for a second um it's it's a really nicely made um structured film yeah it it, that the the way that they uh, that he frames the close-ups on on people talking also it reminds me a little bit of ozu where you do you feel almost this like that you're face to face in this conversation with them and it kind of uh brings in your focus a little bit more uh you mentioned jonathan demi and it kind of this film has that warm humanity that a lot of uh, you know his films have you know it, it's it's difficult to describe because it is this very very serious uh <laughs> you know problem that they're going through in this in the movie but there's just this warmth there's just this this human quality that um you mentioned earlier that when you when a director kind of his follow-up after having such a whoops, uh, lauded uh not re- it's not really his debut but this just this lauded kind of entrance into the into the industry um I, i've been telling a lot of people about beale street that it has the you can you can tell it's from the guy who made moonlight i think aesthetically there's a there's a, a, a kinship between those two movies but at the same time they feel like completely different movies and when i left this one that's the one the the immediate thing that i was just really satisfied with was i was like barry jenkins made a a movie after moonlight and you could feel it being a barry jenkins movie but at the same time it wasn't like he was um repeating himself he was taking a lot of the same aesthetic and you know technical choices but he was doing something that feels fresh that feels new um and i felt like that was probably the highest compliment i could give to this being you know his follow-up that if you come just you know right after moonlight you'll you'll still have that feeling but it's a completely different you know it's completely different field it's it's he's he's working in this genre uh that feels almost 
and again, I'm just repeating myself, but there is just this kinship, and I, I was really impressed by that. I think that that's that's what's most impressive about this movie that he's able to 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 keep the same while really you know again carving a path for himself. Yeah, I I mean I I, I was conscious as I was watching the film that like I I could feel myself getting excited knowing that he's I think 38 years old. Um, he's he he's by every indication, I haven't had many encounters with him, but, but by every indication, he's a, just a good guy. And, and he's been given, he's earned the, like the, um, resources to make relatively big films. And yet even working within sort of this, uh, sort of mid-level, um, production method, he's making, very personal films that um, I just don't, I don't know. I, I don't know that we've had movies like this Tell, telling this, these kinds of um, stories about the black American experience. Um, I, I, I mean, I really, as I was watching it, I was thinking this is exciting getting to watch a young filmmaker, like learn and improve from film to film. And I just can't wait to see what he does next. No, I, I, I 100% agree. Um, I wanted to move on. You had two uh, films that were very high on your your top of TIFF list. Uh, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on both of them because they're both directors that I know the you know the panelists the the contributors here at cinematary are big fans of yeah um yeah just quick i don't i don't want to eat up a lot of time but a quick mention first of all for ash's purest white which is the new film by the chinese director zha jung and um you know my comment on twitter was that um generally speaking when i talk about about jia uh my favorite of his films is a film from 2006 called still life which um, most of it is set at the Three Gorges Dam project. And um, at the time, Ja was very interested in just kind of documenting the erasure of all of this Chinese history as the dam was being closed and the waters were rising and, and the floodwaters were, were, um, were, burying, um, were burying a lot of uh, Chinese history. Um, but it's very much like a, uh, 2006 slow cinema film. I mean, it's, it's a lot of people walking slowly, um, through landscapes. Um, and with ashes, purest white coming after, you know, this, this with a touch of sin a couple years ago, he kind of made a bit of a transition towards more, um, generic filmmaking. And, um, I think the thing that really excited me about ashes, purest white, which was, my favorite film at the fest is that um, like this was just candy for me because, because it really, it's, it's him. I, the same thing I said about Barry Jenkins, I feel like um, Jia Junke and um, his actress, Zhao Tao are just getting better with each film. Like they're they're They've made this transition into more classical style of acting and more genre focused filmmaking, and they're getting better at that. And yet this film um, I believe it begins in 2001. Zhao Tao plays um, like the wife of a, of a local gangster um, who ends up getting caught up in a crime and serving some jail time. And so she comes out of prison in 2006 
And so it's revisiting. Um, uh, she actually at one point visits the area around the Three Gorges Dam. And you get like this little teaser of um, the way I describe it on Twitter. It's like Ja is reminding us that he can still do brilliant slow cinema whenever he wants to. But he's now also integrated it into just this really great genre film of about, about a sort of woman um, uh, sort of finding her own power after being, you know, tied to this um, this gangster. Um, so like the mixture of those two genres was just super exciting. Such a great film. And the other one was Transit, which I was a big fan of the director's film uh, from a few years back, uh, Phoenix. And I, <laughs> I was upset that I didn't go and see this. I, I picked between this and Cold War. And Cold War was fine, but judging from a lot of the reactions, not just yours, but just from around the festival, it seemed like Transit was the one that I probably should have gone to because it, it was a big hit. Yeah, it's weird. It's it's uh, it's like a symptom of the festival rollout. Transit premiered at Berlin way back in February, I guess, and hadn't had any other big international festival screening. So I think that's why um, I'm not surprised you and a lot of other people overlooked it, which is which is a shame. Um, I was uh, for the past few weeks, I'd been planning on I'd assumed that Petzold would be at the festival. So I had uh, gone back and rewatched a lot of his films in hopes of, of interviewing him. Um, and so I think that ended up priming me for transit, which I saw on the first day of the festival. Um, I don't know if you, if you or, or, or Lydia Reed have seen any of his films other than Phoenix, but, um, I would encourage everyone to check out Petzl. Um, he's part of sort of the Berlin school of, of filmmaking where you've got, um, a group of really smart filmmakers who are, uh, sort of like Ja and, and also kind of like Kelly Reichardt are kind of working within familiar genres, but, um, they, uh, are just whip smart. Um, they're sort of classical style filmmakers, but then they're also, a lot of them were, um, under sort of the influence of this great, uh, political filmmaker named Haroon Faroqi. And so um, all of their work has uh, a really smart um, political um, bent in them, too. Um, Transit is and and again, I went in knowing absolutely nothing about it. And um, this is a this is maybe a bit of a spoiler, but it's based on a novel um, that is about the um, the French occupation by the Nazis. And it's about a, a, a guy who who takes on the persona of a dead writer um, and travels to Mer- uh, Marseille as a, in an attempt to flee occupied, occupied France. Um, but what's so interesting about the film is Petzold makes no effort to make it a period film. So it's obviously a World War II story, but it's set in contemporary uh, uh, Marseille. And uh, it, it took me three or four minutes to, to sort of realize, I mean, it's not really a spoiler because you figure it out within the first two or three minutes. Um, but, uh, yeah, just another one of these films where, and this is why I keep going back to festivals to see these films on a big screen and with, with no expectations is it, it's just another great experience of sitting down in a theater and knowing, um, knowing that you're sort of in the hands of a master filmmaker, um, who you can kind of trust 
to um, do something like as audacious as making a World War II film in present day, present day <laughs> France. It's great fun. It does. I don't know. I guess I, I guess it's one of those you have to see it. But I, I mean, how does he handle a lot of the I mean, there's just such a, a history of, you know, the visual representation of of Nazis in in movies. I mean, does this kind of make it feel like something uh, unique, like something different just because he he completely ignores the uh, historical setting of it? Well, it reminds me a little bit of like those um, restagings of, say, a great Shakespeare play in, you know, Nazi era Germany or something like that, where it's um, the anachronisms are built into the experience. So for the first few minutes of the of transit, um, the characters. I would have to see it again to see if, if this is true for the entire film. But my sense during the first few minutes was that this is set in 1944 or whatever, because the, the, the there's nothing particular about their haircuts or the way they're dressing that's, they call it, that specifically says this is somebody in 2018. Um, but then you'll see, I think the first thing I noticed was somebody walks out on the street and like a moped rides by or a, or a modern ambulance or police cruiser goes by. Mm. And, um, and so part of the like frisson of the experience is just these weird anachronisms, um, kind of colliding with each other in a single image. Um, it's almost, um, what's the right word? Surreal is probably not exactly the right word, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a, like, um, a bit of formal expression that I'm just not accustomed to seeing. And so it never, like the excitement of it never wore off for me through the whole film. Awesome. Um, well, hopefully these these will be f- movies that we can see soon. Possibly, I don't know. Maybe I'm just putting words in your mouth, but like at Knoxville people for the public cinema. <laughs> <laughs> I know Transit has uh, has already been picked up for distribution in the states. I don't know about and I, and if Beale Street could talk, we'll get a huge release. And yeah, yeah, no, that one's fine. And uh, Ashes Purest White, I think it's been picked up. I can't remember. I feel like the, all three are directors that have had recent success that, you know, distributors would, would look for them and, and seek them out. Um, one of the, the movies that I talked about uh, in one of our diaries from the festival was A Star is Born and Read. I want to talk to you because you caught the new one. But first, I wanted to, I wanted to get your thoughts a little bit on the yeah. – not the original, the, the first remake with Judy Garland. Right. So I knew I was going to be seeing the 2018 version this week. So I actually – I watched the 37 version and the 54. Um, and I was floored by the 1954 version. Uh, it's got such a weird history. If you know about it, basically the movie was premiered with a cut that ran over three hours – one of the producers didn't like it and cut it down. And then in 19, I believe it was 74 maybe, was when the restoration happened and they released a cut that was pretty close to the original. But there's still parts of the movie that are missing. So you have scenes where they have still images where and the camera will like do the pan and scan over those as they've recovered the audio that'll play, which is interesting in itself. But that's like a very small portion of the movie. I just found that like history of it really interesting. But... um the movie itself is fascinating. Judy Garland uh, kind of blew me away. Um, it's it, it's very similar to the original, the 1937 version, but I actually found a lot of the the way it uses music and the way it uh, 
integrates that into the story that it's adapting pretty directly uh, to be way more interesting for me than the original, which is uh, a fine movie, I thought, but not not quite what I was looking for. But the I don't. It was something just wild about the Judy Garland, the way she performed, and uh, the romance between her and the character played by James Mason uh, just was so good. And uh, if you know anything at all about the story, and as far as I know, it runs very similarly across all now four versions of it. Um, I haven't seen the Barbara Streisand version, but I'm assuming it run- it's fairly similar. But the first half is sort of... Uh, uh, two characters falling in love as one of them rises into fame, kind of ushered by the other. And it's the male character ushering the female into this world of fame uh, in all the stories. And then the second half is often like this decline for the male character. And um, that's way oversimplifying it, but that's kind of the main through line for all, all of the movies. And the thing that struck me the most about this one is somehow it was so like, I was so bought into the romance the entire time. Like the 1937 version was romantic at times and leading up to about the halfway point, I was really caught up in it. And then once it started to change and she was super famous and he was fading away, I wasn't as attached to the story. I found uh, their dialogues were interesting still, but they weren't like uh, pulling me in like, like the 54 version with Judy Garland where there's moments in that one where you know what's coming, you know uh, kind of the plot points and the struggle that the James Mason character is going through, but you, it's just delightful to watch him and Judy Garland on screen still, even though you can kind of see into his head as he's struggling with uh, alcoholism in that one and uh, a decline in his star stature. Um, you see all that on the outside, but then you can also just see him entranced with Judy Garland and just so in love with her. And I, I, the movie, that one particularly really, uh, I fell in love with that movie, honestly. Have you all seen that version? It's been a while, but yeah, I have, I have not seen any of them prior to seeing this new one. So that's why I was kind of curious. I assumed that the, the story beats followed the same, uh, path through all of them because, it's not like whenever you're remaking stuff, you're really that creative with it. But the thing that struck me, and I talked a little bit about with this new one, um, is that it felt like um, it kind of it felt like it was the right time to make another remake. Uh, one of the comparisons I I kind of had with Bradley Cooper's character was we're we're in a, you know in an age you know, dominated by technology, which is something very different from the, the, you know, a lot of what the other three movies were dealing with at all. You know, they didn't have nearly the, uh, technological advances that we have today. Plus, uh, with the, with the recent, uh, suicides of Chris Cornell and Chester Bennington, uh, who were, you know, kind of musicians that felt like of the same ilk as Bradley Cooper's character in, in this movie, it felt, it felt more prescient. It felt like, uh, there was a lot more it could kind of say about the, about mental health and addiction within, with, with celebrities like this in today's, uh, modern music industry. And, uh, but I'm, I'm curious, what, what did you make of this new one? after watching those, those, the other two? Um, well, 
Uh, can we spoil much? I don't know what y'all you've already gotten into about this one. Um, I tried to I tried to tread it, but it. I mean, guys, this is what yeah. the fourth version. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the beats the the beats hit the same. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, uh, at risk of just sounding like I'm comparing it to the older versions, which was my fear in watching a couple of them before. Like I don't really like doing that that often if I can help it, but. Um, I do think one of the smartest things about this newer Bradley Cooper one is how it treats uh, uh, suicide and how it treats the mental health and the alcoholism because the other movies, they get into it and they're about those things, but they're about them in a very different way. And it was, uh, I guess it was a different time and it was, uh, uh, it almost glamorizes some of those aspects in the older versions, even though they're still very dark movies, the the moments uh, that are full of despair are a little more surreal and are a little more glamorous than say in the Bradley Cooper version, which um, I did, I did uh, really enjoy this one. I thought it, his style was so interesting to me because I didn't know what to expect at all with the Bradley Cooper directed movie. If I'm being honest. Sure. No, but, uh, no that's, that's the same way. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't know I was going to get like 90% close ups and, um, a lot of uh, moving camera, but I, I actually thought he had a strong sense of style. Whether it all works visually, I'm not sure, but um, I thought it was at least. Uh, I don't know. I thought it's not a bland like actor turned director debut as we sometimes see. It's very uh, interesting, and it's trying to be directed, and it's trying to. Uh, he's trying to do something interesting with this material. Um, and he does, I think. Um, well, I was just going to say the, the, just the, the first kind of part of it, like you described where it's the two characters falling in love, the, that part of this one, I, I said it before, but it's that it's really magical. And, and, and I think that, uh, that's going to be just a giant hit with, with, with audiences when it comes out, just that, that first 45 minutes when the, you know, Lady Gaga's character and Bradley Cooper's character are falling in love. It's he, he films that and, and structures that so well. Oh, I, I totally agree. I think, I mean, it's very easy to fall in love with both of them as you're watching it, I thought. Um, yeah. I, they're both terrific in the movie, uh, which I was going to say that goes without saying, but I, it really doesn't. Like, I don't always love Bradley Cooper, and I didn't know what to expect from Lady Gaga, but they're both terrific. Um, but yeah, I mean, you get you get caught up in their romance, and the way he shoots both of them is very, uh, it sounds weird shooting himself, but it's very loving. His camera is very loving towards both of their faces, which is kind of a through line with Lady Gaga's character anyways. Um, but I, I agree. A little, that, a little similar to Beale Street, like we talked about earlier. Like it's, it's, it's kind of strange that these, that it was a very similar way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, hearing y'all talk about that one just made me even more excited, honestly. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think the first half is particularly strong and I, uh, the second half, it kind of, I, I so many critics are saying this, so I feel super generic saying it, but it doesn't work quite as well. I think he could have uh, held some parts out and made it a little longer, maybe. I don't know if the movie needed to necessarily be longer, but I could have watched more of it. And I think I think we miss parts of their relationship towards the end that uh, if he had focused on their relationship in the midst of all the struggles they were going through, maybe it would have been a stronger movie overall for me. But it's uh, I think the choices he makes are overall 
uh, good. And I don't know. It's it's a weird movie. I think one of the one of the things I was thinking about that is different between it and the uh, 1954 version and the 1937 version is uh, in those movies, the actresses, so they play actresses instead of musicians, but the actresses, as they're getting more well-known, they don't get worse at their job. They actually just get better. Like Judy Garland becomes a better, more well-known actress who can dance harder, sing stronger. Like everything gets better about her as a performer. But... In this one, one of the um, one of the key sequences is Lady Gaga, uh, her character performing uh, on SNL, and it's this very it's the way he shoots how SNL, the stage and the audience looks too. But the song she does this is a super generic pop song, and I like pop, but it is a pretty bad song. And uh, it, he shoots it kind of soulless and soul crushing, and then his character kind of has a breakdown in the midst of that. And I thought that was an interesting take that I didn't really like quite as much. I would rather her have just, I would have been fine with watching her still be very good at what she does and still be excelling in like a, an artful way while all this other stuff was going on. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it, it, it does seem cliche to say just in, in, from what cr- other critics have said, but the, the second half does kind of, it just kind of wavers too much. And I think it, it, it figures itself out in the third act to kind of close, but um especially after just being really swept away in that first part it it's it, it was a little bit of a you were kind of like well let's go let's go back to that it was so nice then now we're now we're at the part where it's not as nice um well star is born is going to be coming out pretty soon actually october 4th so it's a, just a it's just a couple weeks away and i feel like it's probably going to be a big hit so <laughs> and it probably win a lot of awards so this will probably not be the last time we talk about it um before we we head into the second part though lydia since you've been very silent uh i wanted to <laughs> you, you have a piece on the site right now for the film mandy uh i wanted you to give just a quick little little teaser for for people who haven't caught that yet on cinematary.com uh, okay, spoilers for my piece. I really, really did not have a fun time with Mandy. Um, and in my piece, I kind of explored what it was specifically about seeing it with a midnight audience and that actually really seemed to click with it because Mandy's been getting a lot of hype. Um, it missed it missed me. <laughs> uh, and I... I don't necessarily know if it deserves the hype or if it's just like a very specific kind of audience likes it so details in my piece yeah i would encourage people to to read it because yeah this is it's it seems to be the uh the kind of popular film twitter pick right now in terms of genre movies uh so I like genre movies and I'm okay with them, but like this one just wasn't doing it right. <laughs> well, I believe it's on, uh, you can rent it on iTunes and video on demand and all those places right now. If you're in St. Louis, you can catch it again this weekend at the moolah. They're doing another two nights of midnight screenings. There you go. Come on, St. Louis people. Uh, All right, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back talking night moves after this. 
Hello, Cinematary listeners. This is Zach Dennis with an important message because I have not talked to you enough during this episode. Uh, Cinematary would like you to know that we do not want your money. We're not clamoring for your dollars. At this time, we just want to enjoy each other's company and talk about the movies and feel our, you know, distribute our thoughts to the world and become podcasting moguls. You know, simple stuff. No money involved. Uh, However, there are a few things that you could do to help out the show. We would really appreciate it. The first thing is review us on iTunes. I know literally every podcast asks you this. They're like, please review us on iTunes. But it's like important because I don't know, iTunes, this is what they do. This is how this is how the Apple Lords constrict us and keep us in their system. That's just what happens. So we need a, a nice little review. Just take like two minutes one day. Be like, this is podcast review time. Put us on the list. Uh, secondly, you can tweet us. We're at Cinematary on Twitter. Or better yet, send us an email. We're Cinematary at Yahoo.com. So we can hear from you. If you're just like Zach, uh, you you have terrible taste. Why do you keep talking about these superhero movies? Uh, you keep talking. Also, you keep talking about these Japanese movies where all they do is, is is drink sake and smoke cigarettes and talk about how life's awful. And I'll be like, yeah, what you're wrong. And you'll be like, yeah, but I'm just emailing you and it'll be a whole thing. It'll be a nice discourse. Think about it. Um, and finally, please tell your friends and family, you know, they should know as well. I'm sure they like movies. I'm sure they like podcasts. We don't know. Uh, to recap, review on iTunes, iTunes review day. Do that. Secondly, send your thoughts, Twitter, email, one of those. Do it. Third, share with your friends and family. We would love it. Do it, please. Thank you. Now, let's get back to the show. of episode 213 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be continuing our Directed by Kelly Reichardt series with 2013's Night Moves. Uh, This one comes from a screenplay by Reichardt and John Raymond. And the film follows three radical environmentalists, played by Jesse Eisenberg, Dakota Fanning, and Peter Sarsgaard, who plot to blow up a dam. Uh, In September 2012, the Edward R. Pressman film filed a lawsuit against this movie, demanding that filming cease because of their being alleged too many similarities to Edward Abbey's novel The Monkey Wrench Gang, which was being adapted into an authorized film by Henry Joost and Ariel Shulman. According to the lawsuit, quote, by way of example only, both works feature the targeting of a dam for destruction by means of ammonium fertilizer laden boats. In the novel, the principal bomb maker is a beer guzzling veteran who served overseas as a Green Beret, where he acquired his knowledge of explosive. The bomb maker in Night Moves is a beer guzzling veteran who served overseas as a U.S. Marine, where he acquired his knowledge of explosives. Both the novel and Night Moves also feature a 20-something woman who starts out as a companion of another member of the group, but develops a sexual relationship with the bomb making veteran despite his initial objections to her to her participation in the group's illegal activities the case was resolved behind the scenes though and the action was dismissed in february 2013 uh 
On the lack of conventional exposition for her characters in this movie, Reichardt said in a Q&A with Tribeca Film that, quote, the language of the movie isn't its dialogue. That's the goal. People sometimes say to me, you know, they don't say why they're blowing up a dam. And I think, well, no, but they ride through a river filled with dead trees that was once a forest surrounded by clear cuts. So they don't need to tell each other what they're doing. Further in the Q&A, she talked a bit about the politics of Night Moves, saying, well, it's not a morality play. It's really, it really is a character film. They happen to be political people. The film to me is really also about how people operate when they're in a community versus how they operate on their own. There's the community of the co-op. There's the documentary film screenings community. The people who come camping in the RVs. People who enjoy nature while exploiting it. Jet skiing in a reservoir that used to be a forest. So there's all these different communities and there's a lot of ideas floating around in them. There's different levels of radicalism. Some people grow their own food and only use rainwater. I hope that the film is asking questions. Obviously, the true radicalism is a dam that takes what was once a forest and makes it a playground for sports. I use electricity, but most dams aren't providing electricity. The shit that be, the shit that the BPs of the world are doing is way more radical than anything in the movie. But you know, that's all legal. So there's all these different levels of what's radical. I think the film is asking if their actions are not the right response to the state of things. What is? Are there any good answers out there? There's no message, but if there is, it's that question. It's not a message. It's a question. Continuing this thread, Reichardt was asked by Filmmaker Magazine that while she said the film isn't a uh, polemical one, others may see it that way to which she said, I think that there is a question and the question is, are are any of these good solutions? Do any of them add up to anything? And if blowing shit up is not the thing to do, what should anybody be doing right now? If we're going to be driven over the cliff and our government's obviously not going to help us because they're in the petroleum business and things are as dire as they seem to be, why don't we all go blow stuff up? I think the answer that we came to with that is that your average person just doesn't have complete faith in their ideology or their intuition. It's not a complete world of fundamentalist thinking. Josh is a fundamentalist, and that was an early thing that John was interested in breaking down, the true believer in whatever world that person exists in. If their ideas are bad, and I think blowing shit up is probably a pretty bad idea, not taking down dams, but young people going out and taking an action that will land them for the next generation of their life in jail is probably not the best plan. But what the fuck? What should anybody be doing right now? No answer was discovered in the making of the film for that question. On the film, Variety said, One of the most sharp-eyed and politically attuned filmmakers of her generation, Kelly Reichardt, blends her lucid, observational approach with a topical thriller format in a to engrossing effect in Night Moves. Perfectly consistent with the director's earlier films and its political dimensions and fascination with nature as both backdrop and subject, this tale of three environmental activists planning a dangerous act of eco-terrorism has a quietly gripping first hour that builds to a suspenseful peak, then yields faintly diminishing returns thereafter as the doubts and implications set in. But if Reichardt doesn't quite stick the landing, she's nonetheless made her most accessible plot-driven picture to date. I'll bite one that may still seem too glacial by mass audience standards to see more than a modest art house turnout. The New York Times said, Night Moves, Miss Reichardt's sharp and haunting new feature comes closer than its predecessors to fitting into an established genre. If Meek's cutoff was a Western, it was one that shot down every frontier cliche in its path. This one can be described as a thriller with political overtones, about three radical environmentalists plotting to blow up a dam. Their motives, while not fully articulated, there is never a lot of talking in a Kelly Reichardt movie, seem to be a mixture of despair, muddled idealism, and boredom. Their seriousness is 
unquestionable, but the film is less interested in assessing the justice of their cause than in probing the contours of their experience. So on that note, let's talk a little bit about Night Moves. And uh, Darren and Reed, I kind of wanted to start with you. Lydia and I have, uh, I feel like, been on every episode so far of this of this series. And the thing that struck me about Night Moves is that... Um, it, it, I kind of agree with uh, A.O. Scott's uh, assessment of it for the New York Times that it does feel like it's kind of going closer to its established genre. It felt like, uh, you know, the movies up to this point seemed like they were kind of floating in this Kelly Reichardt space. And while this one def- definitely has the the staples of, of Reichardt up to this point, um, it feels much more focused in terms of a narrative genre. Um, well, I mean, to pick up on something I was talking about in the first half, the show when I was talking about transit. Um, so again, like a couple weeks ago, I spent some time revisiting a, a bunch of films by Christian Petzold. Um, and so it was really interesting for me to, to revisit um, uh, Night Moves last night, which I hadn't seen um, since its premiere uh, five years ago, I guess. Um, and to, to watch it again within the context of just having seen all these Christian Petzold films, I realized how similar the pleasures of their work is. And, and I think, you know, like I described Petzold as basically being a genre filmmaker who, um, who also has like a very sharp um, political mind that he brings to the work. And um, so Night Moves last night was just, kind of thrilling for me to revisit for, for that same reason. Um, it, the shape of the movie reminded me kind of, of psycho where you've got a, a turning point halfway through and the suspense is, you know, uh, part of the pleasure of the film is just the, the Hitchcockian like suspense that you experience on both, both sides of the bombing itself. So the first half is anticipation and just the, <clears throat> that classic excitement of watching a heist film where you wonder um, how the pieces are all going to fit together and are they going to be able to pull it off successfully? Um, I think Reichard was very intentionally playing with that, even with that little um, moment where they, I assume we're, we're not worrying about spoilers in this discussion. So like they, they, they set the, they set the timer on the bomb and then somebody uh, at the top of the hill has pulls over to like, I assume change a tire on their car. And so you leave us, she leaves us kind of sitting in the suspense of that moment. Um, which is just great fun from a genre point of view. Mm-hmm. And then once the bomb hits, uh, and the, the movie kind of breaks in half and the rest of the film is dealing with the, um, the outcome of, of the bomb, then, uh, it's a new kind of suspense where you're, like wondering, are, I, I don't know that I was sitting there hoping that they would get away with it, but there is kind of this really smart suspense built into the experience and built into the genre itself, which um, is a great, great like delivery mechanism for the political questions that she's asking. Um, and that was a great introduction, Zach. Like I, I hadn't read those, um, those quotes, um, but, but that idea of, her basically saying, yeah, I mean, if, if, if the, 
call to action is to blow shit up and put smart, motivated young people in jail for 25 years, then that's probably not a great idea. But what do you do when you're, you know, in this case, looking at the decimation of the world through global warming or whatever? Like, how do you how do you sit still and watch this happen? Um, What is what is the course of action? Um, and sort of folding those questions into the thrill of a genre exercise, I think, is really smart. Lydia, and I, I, as somebody who literally just before we went into this section said that you like genre movies, um, <laughs> did, did that kind of scratch that itch while watching this compared to the Reichardt movies that we watched up to this point? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the last Reichardt movie that I hadn't seen, and it really feels like the most straightforward bit of genre filmmaking but like it's still very recognizably a film by her um i know it's also i think like the bleakest film she's done because if she's just asking questions and there are no good answers i hadn't really felt that way with anything else so it's like taking a format that's pretty familiar and just like shrugging <laughs> at the end of it so i i like it. i'm really impressed by what she does um reed I, one of the reasons I'll, I'll just admit that andrew said you have to get reed on because reed loves kelly reichardt and her movies so i'm curious i'm curious uh, <laughs> what you make of the of this one i don't know if this is your favorite or where your ranking lies but uh what about night moves do you see kind of similar question to everybody else compared to her other films. Actually, um, it is one of my favorites, even though it is a more straightforward genre movie and she chooses to focus on a male character. But I think uh, what... And I felt this way about certain women, and they're the only two Kelly Riker movies I think I would say this about, um, is that there are just like... Uh, so many images in both these movies that have been stuck in my head since I first saw them. Uh, so many ways she shoots the landscapes and she shoots uh, objects on screen that are just, uh, that haven't like left me. Like uh, I remember, I think the whole sequence with the dam is thrilling, but there's the shot. Um, you, she's been cutting back and forth between several shots. You get the boat's point of view as it approaches the dam. You get close-ups of, the character's faces and then all of a sudden she backs up to a wider shot where it's sitting on the back of the boat you have all the characters in profile and then this dam they're just approaching it and you see it like flatten and close in on them and uh it's just this really haunting moment and it's one of my one of my favorite things she's ever done but i um i think it works really well in her filmography Honestly, I think it has a lot to do with you were talking about him being a fundamentalist character with Josh being fundamentalist and being uh, kind of stuck. I rem- I listened to y'all's conversations for uh, River of Grass and Wendy and Lucy and um, Old Joy. And it, so much was said about characters just being stuck. And in this one, Josh is just stuck in a state of mind. He has the mobility to physically move himself from place to place. But to him, this is the only way out. And he talks to other characters and you see in these other communities, like Kelly Reichert was saying, and those, uh, the quotes you pulled, 
you, these other communities, you have the documentary filmmaker who is saying just these really dooming, like really ominous things in her documentary. And then she stands up and everyone's like, well, what can we do to fix it? And she goes, well, it's just a bunch of little things. And it, it seems like a weird, like half-assed answer for how passionate she is in her documentary. It's not like the answer itself is bad, but her presentation and her commitment only seems to be there in the, uh, during the documentary. And it's, uh, Josh can't comprehend that. He's kind of stuck in this fr frame of mind where he has to do this next big thing to fix the world. He has to do this next big thing. And that's uh, that plays out even more when he talks to um, uh, the commune leader, kind of the, I forget who that actor is. Um, but when he calls the people that blew up the dam idiots, and it all of a sudden, like, you see Josh hurt a little bit. And you don't know at this point if that guy's his father or if that guy is just a guy he lives with or what the deal is. But you see Josh is hurt because he thought he had done something to affect the world in a positive way, even though it was like an initially negative thing. And all of a sudden he realizes maybe he hasn't, but he's still stuck in that frame of mind that he can't get out of. And I think that is uh, just a through line through all of her movies. Yeah, and it's also he's hurt because he assumed that they would be on board with his his way of thinking, and that kind of leads to one of the things I wanted to talk about, and it's this the lead performance by Jesse Eisenberg because I feel like he's an actor that we're most accustomed to seeing as kind of a uh, fast talking, antisocial uh, kind of jerk. You know, you think of like the social network or uh, some, you know, some of his uh, even like the squid and the whale, like a, a lot of his movies that he's very much known for. He kind of has that persona in this one. He's very reserved. He's very downtrodden. He doesn't say much. Uh, I mean, I think like the uh, granted, they all three kind of do it. But the epitome of that is is when they're at that park bench and the guy <laughs> comes over and tries to talk to them and nobody's having it. And then the guy just st stands there very awkwardly. And as somebody who grew up in the South, I was like cringing inside at that very deeply because it just felt like like the politeness. I was like, oh, no, this is not good. Um but what, what, what do you what do y'all make of Jesse Eisenberg's performance kind of counter to what he is uh, he's usually known for? I thought he was really uh, effective, especially in the second half of the film when he starts to collapse, kind of um, uh, something about the the whole um, setup of of his storyline gives me great anxiety. Like mm -hmm. I I. I I don't know if this is common, but I actually have a recurring dream where, um, like in the dream, I'm 100% convinced I'm awake and I have at some point deep, deep, uh, in the past done some sort of horrific crime. Um, and so I wake up like feeling this anxiety and this strangeness about like, wait, what is real? Like, am I really guilty of some great, harm or some great crime and um like i was living it with him as things started to unravel and it's, as he realized that the sort of the net was closing in around him um i th I, th I enjoyed that performance a lot uh there's the really uh to speak to what you said there's the effective scene in the second half where uh he's sorting vegetables in that tent 
and he hears a car pull up and he just like backs up to the edge of the tent and peeks out and he can't stop like looking out because he's just looking over his shoulder every second. It's also interesting because we, we mentioned it before, but a lot of his ideology seems very internalized. Uh, like Kelly Reichardt said in the in the quotes, they're not talking about what they're going to do because you can kind of tell that they're going to go do it and, and the reasons why they would want to do it. Um, and I felt like that's... Uh, this was something drastically different from what we're used to seeing with our movies. Um, we talked about in, you know, in Rivers, of pretty much every movie up to this point, you kind of have that one character, usually Will Oldham, that <laughs> that likes to pon- that likes to sit there and pontificate and talk uh, and act like he's the smartest person in the room. Whether it's a Will Oldham <laughs> character, whether it's uh, Bruce Greenwood and, and Meeks cut off, uh, and. It seems like Jesse Eisenberg's character, you know, I kind of thought that the Peter Sarsgaard character would fit that, but and he does to an extent, but it seems like Jesse Eisenberg's character is very much that person, except he's completely internalized it and and made it so that there's I don't know, it feels much more modern. It you know, it feels like uh, you have those people a lot today, but they're able to to keep it internalized. Or they're able to keep it within like a, 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 a so you know a, a online persona, and it kind of ter- it kind of terrified me in the way uh, of like some alt-right uh you know kind of terrorist i I was thinking of like the this it's an extreme but like the the alt-right terrorist character from 22 july where he has this ideology in his head and it doesn't seem to be really expressed and interrogated and talked about with people but it's just set in there and uh that's just kind of the sense i got with jesse eisenberg's character where he has the elements of these these characters that we've seen in her movies before but he's also much more modern and so it's just all caught in his head i don't know is that something does that make any sense (laughs) yeah it does and and i wonder if um dropping dropping characters into basically genre conventions freed her up to um be able to write a character like that you know in the sense that uh, like uh, so much is happening to josh that uh, she can get away with him being that talkative character who you're you're ta- you're describing, Zach, um, and yet it is all completely internalized. It's the it's, I mean, and maybe that's why I identify with that character a little bit. Is like, I feel like that's how I live a lot of my life is with this constant internal monologue about you know politics and what's the right thing to do and and so on. Yeah, and I think that that just continues to speak to what she's saying of, well, what are we supposed to do? And his, he's finally given up on asking, well, what are we supposed to do? And gone, well, the I can find the answers in, you know, inside. And to, that just is very 2018 to me. <laughs> it's a little, it, that made his character a little bit uh, more unnerving. Um, I want to. I also wanted to, to kind of look a little bit at this. Uh, we talked last week with uh, Deermid about he he classified kind of the Oregon trilogy of Old Joy, uh, Wendy and Lucy, and Meek's Cutoff. But this is also one that does take place in Oregon, and uh, I, I'm curious if if it kind of continues that thread of stuff that we've been kind of talking about this this connective tissue of 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 Reichart 
kind of using the landscape of Oregon and this uh, this vast you know shrubbery of of of, of nature to uh, to be a canvas for for these these characters and I felt like for a story like this where she's talking explicitly about environmentalism uh, especially in the Pacific Northwest that seems to be very much the hotbed for a lot of these issues um, I mean did, did you feel I don't know any any kind of connection to some of the stuff that we've been talking about uh, with the pre- previous three movies. I don't know, Lydia, if if you see any connection with with kind of what we talked about uh, last week and the week before with Nicole. No, because this one doesn't really explore the concept of not being stuck, but like the not necessarily having roads or having a definitive plan or striking out on your own. Because when you're in a little terrorist cell, you. And one of the distinctive things about this is like there is no setup scene where they're like discuss the plant details and okay this is what we're gonna do like that all happens pre movie and it's like so now they have this very definitive plan and pass they have to take and we're just kind of exploring mentally how they're reacting to that um I'm sorry that's not answering your question. <laughs> at all no 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 i think i think no i think you're i think you're right that, that that's again what kind of makes this different i felt like uh, compared to those to the movies leading up to this because we talked uh last week with meek's cutoff that there is there is this kind of a to b line but there's so many ways to kind of di- that they divert from it over the course of the movie just because of of just unforeseen circumstances and this one seems like the a to b goes pretty is fine like they get from a to b very you know relatively easily uh it's just what happens after b that is where uh, things start to unravel and a lot a lot of the 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 stuff that i saw and while i was looking up uh interviews with her was she talked about um you know after after performing this this act like what do you do afterwards like what's 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 the what's the response and if the you know (laughs) uh, the response afterwards and um I felt like you, you kind of have these these three perfect personified characters to, to, to show that because the Peter Sarsgaard character just kind of goes in the hiding and doesn't seem to really, we don't really see the effect on him. Jesse Eisenberg's character continues to just inter, kind of internalize it and uh, hope that he won't be seen for it. And then, of course, Dakota Fanning's character starts to, to break down. Um, and so I think that's what's interesting about this one is that there still is that A to B path, but then it's like we're going to continue on past that B point, and uh, that's that unknownness is what creates the 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 tension and the suspense that uh, that is effective for this movie. It honestly seems like they did not think about at all what the result would be. <laughs> like, when committing an act of terrorism, usually you want to know the result. Like it seems like to me. Well, that's a. I mean, that's a, that's a great point, and it's an interesting question. Uh, it's an interesting political question. Um, there's another. There's another film um, call, uh, that you all might enjoy called Day Night Day Night by Julia Loctev that came out. 2008, I'm thinking, somewhere around there. And it's about a young woman who has uh, 
sort of found her way into some kind of political action mm-hmm. cult or something like that and and basically decides that she's going to wear a bomb and walk into Times Square and, and blow herself up. And um, I haven't rewatched it um, since it since it first came out. And at the time, I was really angry with the film because it makes I mean, even less than Night Moves, it makes absolutely no effort to explain her her political motivations. So it's just about the the um, also a Hitchcockian exercise, but also it's just about the the thrill and the um, sort of almost like identity formation that comes with uh, throwing yourself into a radical political act. Mm-hmm. And um I think day night, day night sort of cheats in the way it handles it. And one of the things I like about night moves is that it does sort of like Zach was saying, it does go from a to B, but B is right in the middle of the film. And then, you know, the characters wander off to C, D, E, F, whatever. Like they don't, they don't know exactly where they're heading. Um, can we talk about the last scene? Yes. Mm-hmm. The, and because I was thinking about it with your question, Zach, about whether this fits in with the other Oregon films. And um, one of the many things that I think is genius about the final scene is that it takes place in this outdoor sporting goods store where, you know, people like me will go in and buy the kinds of clothes that the radicals and the um, – you know, communitarians are, are, um, are wearing sort of in real life. And I can go and buy those clothes and like put them on as like a kind of personal brand, Mm -hmm. you know, like here I am in my outdoorsy boots and, (laughs) and my windbreaker. Um, and you know, like the idea that, uh, the kind of, um, you know, like I'm, yeah, I'm really into like conservation and fighting global warming. And you can tell because I'm wearing the right clothes. I've bought the right yeah. things. Um, you know, I'm, I'm showing it in all the ways I've been trained to show it in, you know, 21st century, like capitalist America. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a brilliant, brilliant little um decision for the staging of that final scene it's also just kind of picking at the uh the falseness or the uh the hypocrisy of the left where it's like oh i'm 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 very much for climate you know for doing stuff about climate change and the environment i you know i got the gear here uh it, it kind of it, it kind of has that like fake wokeness to it where it's it's uh it, 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 I, I saw her in a couple of quotes that she, she talked about kind of uh, interrogating that because it seems like one of the things that interest her uh, in her movies is to is to is to probe a little bit of the of the hypocrisy of, of, of the left and uh the, the, the you know getting into causes but not really being actually engaging in it yeah I, you know zach i think i mentioned this to you and andrew um in toronto when we were talking about record one day in line but like this is just one of those signs that i'm quite a bit older than you all is when i uh i'm about i guess i'm a little bit younger than record but i'm of the same generation mm. where like um you know when by the time old joy came out in 2006 
I had spent six straight years uh, just in a constant state of rage about um, George W. Bush and the Gulf War and Guantanamo and torture. And um, and so for the first time, I mean, and at the same time, I was also writing a dissertation, trying to write a dissertation that was about the problems of the American left. And. And it, but it, but that those years were the first time when I think people of my generation um, were, you know, we were kind of too young during the Reagan years to be super politically involved. And um, a lot of us, including myself, kind of grew up in a conservative world where Reagan seemed to make sense and he was defeating the Russians and all these things. But then the Gulf War and George W. Bush came along and a lot of us realized, OK, oh, wait a minute. It turns out that our political earnestness doesn't actually stop our country from perpetrating an unnecessary, uh, horrif- horrifying war like this. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's, it's been fun for me, like listening in on your conversations and revisiting the, a lot of these films along with you to sort of revisit that kind of, um, political reckoning that a lot of us who describe ourselves as being of the left have had to go through over the past uh, now 18 years. And this seems like, I think one reason I enjoy Night Moves so much is it seems like this is almost the logical next part of it. It's like, um, yeah, blowing shit up probably isn't the right solution, uh, but what is the right solution? And we're all sort of stuck in this moment. And then ultimately, whatever path we take, the fact is that most of us are like those people in the mirror in the last shot. We're just looking at our phones and we're, we're, we're buying the right clothes and we're, we're wearing the the left leaning brand, mm-hmm. but we're kind of paralyzed. Like all of us are kind of, um, you know, uh, ultimately coming to, well, I guess we got to vote the bad guys out of the office because I, I don't know what else to do. Yeah. No, 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 no. That's that. I, I, I can, I can definitely feel that uh, to an extent. Just, I don't know. Again, <laughs> I guess, I guess, I could. The only way I can relate it is to the present moment that we're in, and I know that we've had discussions uh, amongst ourselves where you're, you're just like. I, I don't know what to do. Like it, like we'll, we can go vote. We can do this, and we can do this, and we can support this. But at the end of the day, is it is is any of this gonna really even matter? And it's kind of like uh, you, you kind of I, you kind of feel like the uh, like the characters when they're sitting in that documentary film uh, <laughs> session at the very beginning, where you're like, well, what can we do? And then, and she's like, well, there's little steps and. Part of you is like, yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah, she's right. Uh huh. Of course, little steps, like we get it. But also, uh, you have, you know, you have this giant thing that we need to to uh, take, you know, get out of get out of here. And that giant thing does not seem to be moving. It seems to be causing more destruction. And we're like, the little steps aren't helping. We need a big step. Uh, and so I think that that's kind of what what uh, really resonated with me with this movie was. Uh, little steps is correct but that's also not uh that's not satisfying it's not that doesn't feel like it's actually making any progress yeah i think one of the things and this plays into what y'all are talking about that i find uh uh really fascinating about this movie is how 
it, how appropriately it portrays like how exhausting this feeling of inevitable destruction is. Mm. And like, cause Jesse Eisenberg is blowing up a dam because he believes there's going to be destroyed anyway soon. So it like, I don't know exactly his political motivation, but if the earth's already going to be dead within his lifetime, why does it matter if he blows up this dam to try to make a difference anyways? And he shows that exhaustion and he has kind of this destruction coming into his own life. But I, I mean, I think, I think a lot of people are dealing with that in the day to day thing with uh, our current situation and past ones. Like, war always just seems like inevitable, like final destruction, and like environmentalism seems like destruction, and it can just be exhausting. And I think that movie, the, this movie, portrays that really effectively. Uh, any any final thoughts about Night Moves before we wrap up? Uh, that's not a large point, but Night Moves is just really gorgeously shot. Um, it's a really, really good looking movie, especially the scene while they're in the boat doing the terrorist act, like the water bouncing up, the light bouncing off the water onto their faces, and then the scene in the steam room with Jesse Eisenberg and Fanning. Like, it just... It's terrible things are happening, but it looks so good. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a shot of uh, Jesse Eisenberg outside of D- Dakota Fanning's uh, building. Um, like late at night, he's he walks like 15 feet maybe and then lands on his mark. And there's this I don't even understand how this light works, but there's a light somewhere out of the frame that is hitting him like his face in profile. Mm-hmm. And I was just like stunned by just the choreography and the beauty of getting his face uh, to, to land in that profile light. It, I agree. It's just a gorgeous film. Uh, Reed, which uh, before we, before we let you, you go, uh, what, what is your favorite of, of Kelly Reichardt's? Uh Probably certain women. Um, this one and certain women feel very, very uh, close together. For me, like in terms of, uh, they feel movies that are, they feel like movies that are similar to each other. Like when y'all talked about the Oregon trilogy, um, this one I don't think had to be set in the Pacific Northwest. I think it probably benefits, but it's not necessarily like a Western movie or like about that idea. It could have been set in the Smoky Mountains and had similar effects probably. Uh, but, but it does feel very, um, akin to certain women, especially in style. When, when you talk about, it being almost two different movies, it being like part A and part B, certain women is literally three uh, shorter uh, stories attached to each other. So I don't know. I find these these are my favorite with Wendy and Lucy in a, as a close third. Uh, well, that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Twitter at handle at cinematary, and on Letterbox at letterbox.com slash cinematary, where we post all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Next week, we will be concluding our Kelly Reichardt series with 2017 Certain Women. Uh, so definitely come back next week and I and if you have not uh, caught up please do of course uh, we have Nicole Seymour on the Wendy and Lucy episode Dear Mid Hester on the Meeks Cutoff episode uh, next week we will also be announcing our October Horror Series we should have some uh, we have some good picks for that as well as a uh, as a special uh, fun event that will be taking place during the during the the series so uh, please check back in next week we'll be giving 
about that. But until then, thank you guys for listening.